The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. We're going to get into God's Word here. We're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, and I... You know, I've come, I've come to understand, and I know many of you have gotten this too, that people at Christmas, um, kind of in a more heightened way, are open to spiritual things. They're searchers, they're uh, seeking after God, they're searching out a faith a little bit more at Christmas than at any other time of the year, really. And, you know, I, I think you already know this, that the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't prescribe that we would celebrate Christmas. Y'all know that, right? There's no prescription, there's no command to celebrate this, nor is there any kind of prohibition against uh, celebrating Christmas. But, but it seems pretty obvious to me that, that as we celebrate it the weird way we do, and we make it such a big deal, it really is the biggest celebration of the year, and uh, weeks and weeks are de- dedicated to this, and, and everything is put on hold to celebrate Christmas. It's, it's pretty obvious to me that God uses that that God uses our observance of Christmas to draw people to himself, to make them more interested than at any other time of year, to make them more interested in spiritual things, matters of the word and matters of, of who God is. God really, in fact, throughout the scriptures, affirms and esteems the seeker or the searcher. Let me give you some verses on this. The psalmist wrote this in the midst of one song. Uh, Psalm 14, 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if, to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. And if you look at the rest of Psalm 14, you find out that really the thrust of the psalm is, no, in fact, there are not. People are not naturally seeking after God. The Apostle Paul, later in Romans, uh, in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 11, uh, expands on this and really picking up where uh, Psalm 14 left off, said there is, there's none who seeks for God. No one. Because in and of ourselves, we have so far removed ourselves from God, we can't possibly be seekers. So those who are actually searching for God, those who are actually asking the questions are doing so because the Holy Spirit has already begun a work in them to become that seeker, to become that searcher. So if that's you, God's already working there. Even though you may not be in a relationship with him yet and you may not have fully figured it all out yet, God's already started a work in you so that you're asking those questions so that you're searching him out. And you know, no matter your starting point, where you find yourself now, Moses said this in Deuteronomy 4.29, from there, from wherever you find yourself this morning, whatever desperate place, whatever place of, of sin and separation from God, wherever you find yourself, from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if... You search after him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So go after it. Seek him. Search him out. And the preacher in 
Hebrews 11.6, he said this, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who, what does it say? Seek him. He rewards those who seek him. And so listen, no matter where you're starting from, no matter how it got started, if you're here asking questions, if you're searching, if you're seeking, continue that. Because God's going to reward that according to his word. And if that's you, if that's who you are, then could I say that you've come to the right place? You've come at the right time? Because we're going to address all of this for the searcher and the seeker by studying this nativity narrative that comes to light again at this time of year to look at a particular set of characters who were men who were themselves searchers and seekers after God. Men who were then just as you are now. And we call them, Matthew 2 calls them the wise men. If you have a different translation, you might see the word magi, which is the original word. And again, it's right here in Matthew 2. They had really devoted themselves. We're going to find out a lot about them. But they had devoted themselves to the pursuit of knowledge and understanding. They wanted to grow in all of these things and to be seekers after the truth. They saw the star. That's their part of the story. They saw the star. And that birthed in them an excitement at the arrival of a new king. And an expectation that he had come to change everything in the world. That he would be the God-ordained Savior that the world needed. And you know, if we're to get anything from this, studying the lives of these, these seekers, then it needs to start with this. And this needs to be true of every person in the room. The birth of Jesus always elicits excitement and expectation in a true believer. Let me say it again because you might not be there yet this Christmas season. But we should all get there. The birth of Jesus always elicits excitement and expectation in the true believer. And so that's what we're going to see. That needs to be true in our lives, not just the first time, not just when I initially come to faith in Christ, not just the first Christmas that I get it, but every year, every time, whenever I'm thinking about the coming of Jesus, it needs to be foremost in my mind. Excitement and expectation. Well, Matthew 2 gives us the whole account. We're going to look at just the first two verses uh, this morning, but I would commend to you that you would read the entire chapter sometime this week. It's what we're going to be spending our time in over the next three weeks. And so let's look at these first two verses. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now ask yourself this first question, am I excited by what God has done? And, and by putting it in the past tense, what I'm talking about now, at least from this perspective in Matthew chapter 2, it, we're really talking about the coming of Jesus Christ, a God becoming flesh, dwelling amongst us. We're, we're talking about this nativity activity that God has done. 
Are we excited by what God has done? Now, these magi are the model for that for us, and so it would be important for us, wouldn't you think, to understand who the magi are. And so, we want to lock this down, sort through, because the, this is Christmas. Lots of tradition has been heaped up over uh, the centuries. A lot of it, uh, not true. So we want to sort out the tradition versus the truth. Does that sound good? And those of you who've been around here a little while know a couple of good words to describe me and Christmas would be a fanatical, extremist about the accuracy of the Christmas narrative. True? Would that be true? Fanatical and extremist about the accuracy of the details of the Christmas story. And so here's what I want us to do. We're going to do a little quiz right now. We're going to see how you do. Six questions. Ready for this? Write down your answers somewhere on your notes. Uh, six questions. We're just calling this the Magi quiz. See how you do. No prizes, just bragging rights. You can go around and tell everybody, I got six out of six. They're going to know you've been here a while. All right? The Magi, number one. Ready? Ready? Good. The Magi were A, kings, B, astrologers, C, government advisors, D, both B and C. Now, when you start to think about some of the research we could do on this, you'd, you'd have that Christmas carol, We Three Kings, and you'd think that that would communicate some accurate information, wouldn't you? We Three Kings. So maybe A is correct. Is that the correct one? What is it? B and C, correct. It's D. It's the last one. It's both. They were astrologers and they were government advisors. And so if We Three Kings is on your Christmas playlist, uh, delete. <laughs> delete. Inaccurate. Number two. The total number of magi who came to see Jesus was two, three, twelve, or unknown. Which one is it? It's D. It's unknown. It's unknown. So again, another good reason to ditch the song. Uh, but you know where this comes from, right? Why the people thought there were three was because there were three gifts, right? But here's what I know to be true. And as much as I would tell Cheryl, maybe on different occasions, say, you know, the kids only need one gift each, right? She buys how many gifts for our kids? How many would you buy for each of our kids? three or four, maybe five gifts for each of the kids by the time they sort it all out. And then there's the stocking. And so listen, just because my kids get three or four or five gifts from their mom doesn't mean they have three, four or five moms. Got the math? Okay. Three gifts doesn't equal three magi. It's just three gifts. So let's not go there. We don't know how many there were. There could have been 12. There could have been 20. There might've been five. We just don't know. Uh, they traveled by camel Reindeer, thank you for laughing. Saturday night didn't even think that was funny. What's wrong with those people? Um, they traveled by foot or they traveled unknown. We don't know how they traveled. Now listen, if you reference all the Christmas cards, right, we conclude that they traveled by, by camel, because lots of camels uh, in, on the Christmas cards. Uh, but according to historians, just do this, ready? Just do this. Just do this right now. Prepare for your mind to be blown. <laughs> they probably traveled by horse. <laughs> so unknown would be the answer there. Um, number four. 
Am I still preaching or are we doing something else right now? I have, I have no idea. They visited Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in the stable on the night he was born, the temple court in Jerusalem, a house in Bethlehem some months later, or Nazareth. Where, where did they visit with uh, the, the young family? Where was it? Uh, C. They were definitely still, still in Bethlehem, but it was months and months later. There's at least three indicators in the text. There's three indicators in the text uh, that it did not happen on the same night. And so the Magi and the shepherds, not there at the same time. They did not become Facebook friends after this because they met each other at that event. Did not happen. Um, and, and so they never met each other. And so this is why those of you who have been around Harvest for a while... This is the way you set up your nativity scenes. To, I'm going to survey you in a second. But you have, your, you have your manger with Mary and Joseph. And you have the angel there. And you have the shepherds. And then on the other side of the room, you have the magi. How many people do that already? Just raise your hand right now. How many people do that? Thank you for indulging my extremism. If you don't do that, you should. If you want to be biblical. Send your emails to rfreeman at harvestberry.ca. <laughs> Number five, they, they, I'm going to run out of time. I can, I can feel it already. Number five, they brought three gifts, gold, silver, precious stones, Lego, soccer ball, kinder surprise, <laughs> gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and gift cards for the Gap Kids, um, Toys R Us, and Timmy's. Which one was it? See, and we're going to talk more about that later, but definitely that was an easy one. Uh, to get to Bethlehem, they followed Google Maps, a star, a prophecy from the Old Testament, both B and C. Yeah, D, it's the last one, both B and C, and we'll, we're going to see that. How many people, let me just ask, how many people got six out of six? Raise your hand. Okay, you got bragging rights right there. So congratulations to you for knowing the accuracy of the text of the Word of God. Let me give you a little bit more now about the Magi. Uh, they were Babylonian or perhaps Persian, and they had strong kind of Arabian influences in their life, especially with regard uh, to their uh, religious system. In a time when astrology, which is like the whole horoscope thing and predicting based on the stars, the whole astrology and astronomy really folded together. It would be the same guys that were studying uh, both of those things. And the Magi were certainly in that category of those who were studying these things. They were practiced together and they watched the stars for really three reasons. There were three uh, kind of intentions in their heart. Uh, scientific for sure, studying and mapping the stars, that's the astronomy part. A religious as, as well as political, all of these things were key disciplines of theirs. Uh, they were well-educated, well-connected, often bearing the reputation as kingmakers in the sense that their predictions, they would then kind of jockey power around based on what they saw in the stars. And so they were uh, kingmakers in that sense. Uh, we see the Magi at work in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. The Magi, the magicians, the Magi interpreted dreams. And Daniel himself would have been counted among the king's advisors and in a certain way would have been counted among the Magi uh, to the king. At the time of Christ, they were consultants to the Roman Empire. They were consultants to the Greek Empire uh, before all of this attested to in historical records. Uh, their interest in the Hebrew Bible, what we would call the Old Testament, would have been peaked around the 5th or 6th century B.C. when the 
exiles from Judea were brought all the way to Babylon. The best and the brightest of the Jewish people were carried off into exile. And when they went to exile, they brought with them the scrolls of the Torah and of the wisdom literature and of the prophets. And they brought that to Babylon. And the Magi would have been so excited to study all of that and to add to their body of knowledge all that they could about the Jewish people. And in fact, long after the exile was over and the Jews had returned to the land of Judea, um, their influence remained many centuries later in the area of Babylon and Persia. For more than 500 years then, the Magi were studying the Bible and waiting for a sign that they had discovered there and became so excited, that's the whole point of this first part of the message, so excited about what they read that they would undertake this journey to search him out. That's what we read in verse 1. See it there. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, magi from the east, came to Jerusalem. Now, I want to come back to the magi in a moment, but we need to notice that this is happening during Herod's reign. And we want to be excited about what God has done and not scorning it. The way Herod scorned it. Now Herod himself was not a legitimate king. Not not to the throne of Israel for sure. He wasn't even fully Jewish. And he was installed as king. Really a puppet dictator under the authority of the Roman emperor. And we're going to see in the next message. That Herod scorned God and scorned his word, even while semi-acknowledging its authority. He gave some approval to the word of God, but not enough that it would transform his life or his ways. We'll see in the next message in verses 3 through 5 that he consults with the chief priests and the scribes about the location of Messiah's birth. But his personal lifestyle was clearly not that of a God-fearing man. And his intentions were certainly not pure concerning the infant king. Again, more about that next week. He was a scorner of truth. Now, I want us to really understand what it means to be a scorner because I don't want to believe, I can't believe that Herod's the only one. And in fact, there may be some people here in the room who, though you find yourself here, you're actually a scorner of God's word. Uh, Warren Wiersbe uh, wrote this. Scorners think that they know everything. And anybody who tries to teach them is only wasting time. Proud and haughty. Scorner is his name. Proverbs 21, 24. Scorners can't find wisdom even if they seek for it. Because learning God's truth demands a humble mind and an obedient will. What scorners lack in knowledge, they make up for in arrogance. Instead of sensibly discussing a matter with those who could teach them, they only sneer at truth and deny it. They are frivolous and impudent. Having no intellectual or spiritual ammunition, the scorner depends on ridicule and contempt to fight his enemies. Now that's, that's Herod for sure. The truth is a is a convenience. It's used 
to one's own advantage, not interested whatsoever in personal transformation as a result of hearing the truth. It's, in Herod's case, politically expedient to give some acknowledgement to the authority of God's word, but not really to allow it to change anything. That's Herod. But don't let it be you. Don't, don't scorn this. Don't, don't sneer at the truth of God's word. Don't deny it. Don't dismiss the birth of Jesus as just, and this is the way we can do it, in, in really a passive way. Even those of us who are the followers of Christ, one way that we can at this time of year scorn the word of God is is just by treating the nativity story as part of it. As, a, as a, a warm, sentimental family tradition that we go to the, 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 the Christmas Eve service, that we have a nativity set in our home, but that somehow we just treat it like all the other things that make up a Christmas. That it's no different than the decorating of the tree or the decorating of the house or the giving of gifts or the eating of a large dinner with all of our family. That somehow all of those things are equal and the same. And they're not even close. And you know that. But we, we scorn the word of God when we treat all of those things on a par as if they're equal. It's not just part of tradition. It's so much more than that. Herod missed it. But the Magi knew it. They were excited about what God was doing, not, not scorning it, but notice here, searching it out. Now listen. They show us, these Magi show us, that first of all, you can't be lazy and pursue the knowledge of God. It doesn't just come to us by default. It's going to take some effort. That you can't be impatient and conduct a search for spiritual truth as if it's just going to come so easily to us. This journey would have been a demanding one for the Magi. We shouldn't dismiss it as just something ordinary. Cheryl and I decided uh, last weekend, I took uh, the weekend off, and so really just a few days before, we decided we were going to go to Ottawa. That's like four or five hundred, depending on what route, four or five hundred kilometers away. But you just decided. A few days before, you go online, you book a hotel. You throw some things in a suitcase. I remember saying to Cheryl, I'm not sure I got everything, but whatever we didn't bring, we'll buy. So we throw some things in a suitcase, we throw them into the car, we hop into our very comfortable car and we drive down the highway and when we need to stop for gas or we need to stop for a meal or we need to go to the washroom or whatever we need to do, the government of Ontario has provided these lovely en route stops for us so it's very easy to pop off the highway and bop back on and off you go. And we arrived in our hotel near the Byward Market and we spent a wonderful three nights in the capital and it was so easy. It was so comfortable. It was so nice. So we have this idea that you can make a long journey and it does, it's not really that hard to do. But that's not at all the case for these magi. They would have traveled anywhere from eight to 1,600 kilometers. We're not exactly sure where they would have come from. They would have traveled either on foot or by 
and not by very good thank you their journey would have been long and arduous and and fraught with risk they would have faced bandits and harsh weather and unfriendly and suspicious villagers this was a very difficult journey for them and I would have us hear that a journey to find Christ is not necessarily an easy journey. That there's challenge involved in it. That we should never trivialize the gospel as being an easy thing to believe and do. Jesus himself said, and he went to the cross, and we look at that as a place of suffering and of torture and of death. And Jesus said to us, take up your cross and follow me. Does that sound easy to anyone? Because the decision to follow Jesus Christ is a radical decision that alters my life from one direction to another, 180 degrees. Radical transformation. That's what Jesus calls us to. That's not easy by anyone's estimation. The cost to make this trip would have been enormous for them. Please don't think that if there was two magi or there was five magi or however many there were, that it was just them traveling. These were people who had political power and they were influential and they were wealthy and intelligent. And to make that kind of journey, you can't just, a couple of you hop in a car and go. There would have been a massive entourage, a caravan that included servants of all kinds who would cook and who would clean and who would set up. And there would have been armed uh, guards and escorts who would go along to protect this caravan. It could possibly have been in the dozens or maybe even a hundred or more who traveled. So the cost to do this journey, it's not just a, hey, let's go to Ottawa thing. It's a massive undertaking that would have come at enormous cost. And if you're gonna search out Jesus, that's what, it, that's what it's gonna be. And at the end of the journey, here they are, they're, they're spending all this, they're making the sacrifice, they're facing all the risks, and at the end of the journey, they had no idea what they were gonna find. They had no idea how this was actually gonna turn out. All they, they just had a prophecy and a star and they were hoping at the end there was gonna be something to see. And so please don't think that your search is gonna be any easier. Coming to faith in Jesus is harder. I was thinking about this, just harder the older you get. And I think some of us um, some among us who came to faith in Christ as children and were raised in Christian homes. I mean, it's all you've ever known. And if you never had a challenge to your faith, it's all you've ever known. And you don't know anything else. And so for you, in your mind, a little bit, it's like, well, this wasn't hard. It's just, it's the only thing I've ever known. But to those of us who came to faith as teenagers, I was a teenager, my mom and dad are here, and and. They came to Christ. We all came to Christ about the same time. So they were well into their adult years when they came to Christ. And it's just not as easy. And the older you get, the harder it gets to actually make that commitment. Because there's so many dangers and risks and so much opposition that comes against you when you're going to make that decision. 
Let me give you a few of these. How about doubts? I wonder if this is really true. I've spent a lifetime believing something else. How could this possibly be? And the doubts can keep you. Or how about the fears that you have? How is this going to change my life? Will people even like me anymore? What about your past? The longer you live, the more skeletons in your closet, the more darkness that's in your past, the more things you feel you have to overcome, the more forgiveness you need to seek. And you can think about your past and just go, there's no possible way God could ever love me. Look at all the stuff that's back there. Or how about the naysayers and skeptics in your life who tell you you don't need it? Or the grip that this world has on you, shaping your thinking over an entire lifetime. Conspiring to keep you from searching, let alone finding, let alone believing. And all I can say to you is this, just, just really one thing. Just do as the Magi did. Make the decision to go on the journey. Make the decision to push through all the obstacles. And make the decision to arrive at that place where you find the hope that you're seeking after. Search it out. Do the hard thing. And then see that there isn't. This is what we're talking about. See that there isn't a growing excitement in you every step of that journey. And then see that that excitement isn't the very thing. I'm so excited about discovering what's at the end of the journey. And the further you get and the more obstacles you overcome. That excitement just continues to grow and to build until you see the fruition of that. The end of the journey and the realization of the hope that you had. That excitement actually helps you overcome all of the obstacles. And at the end, you find Jesus. That's awesome, right? All right, that's the first question. Ready for the second question? Here's a second one. Am I expectant for what God is doing and will do? Now, this is what the Magi asked when they actually got to Jerusalem. Look at verse 2 now. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, let's pause there for a second. I said when they got to Jerusalem because that's where they went. Now, we know already that Jesus was born where? Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem. It's not far away. It's about eight kilometers away, as I understand. And, and, and listen, so the, so the Magi are over in Persia or Babylon or wherever they are, and they've been waiting, 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 and watching. The star appears. Now, we have this idea, again, a false idea. We have this idea, and this comes from um, those children's Christmas specials, I think which is not a good source for accuracy in the nativity story. So, but we have this idea that the Magi saw the star, and then tell me if this isn't true, then the star moved in front of them and led them the entire journey around Mesopotamia and down into Israel. Is that not true? Is that what you remember from the kids' specials? Raise your hand if that's true. Yeah, that's what I saw. That's what we saw, that the star actually moved. That is not what happened. They were waiting for a sign, and the star appeared, and they knew that the star related to a prophecy concerning Judea. And so as soon as they saw the star, what they did is they packed up their horses, not, 
and they moved all the way. They just went right to Jerusalem. And why'd they go to Jerusalem and not Bethlehem? Because that's where the palace was. That's where the king was. And they naturally assumed that if there was a new king being born, he's going to be born where? In the palace to the king. So they go to Jerusalem. Natural thing to do. Verse 2. Back to verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. Nothing there about that it leading them. And have come to worship him. They saw his star. Now where'd they get this from? Numbers 24, 17. So in the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, we see this verse. It's a messianic prophecy pointing to Jesus Christ. This is what was written. I see him, but not now. So it's something that's going to happen. It's not happened yet. I behold him, but not near. It's still a ways off. A star shall come out of Jacob. That's the sign in the heavens. And notice, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The scepter, the sign of royalty. So when the star appears, new king. Now you got to believe that when the exiles arrived in Babylon in, in, in the 500s BC and they had the Torah and the Magi said, can we read those please? And they started to read these and the first among the Magi who read this verse was, was just like, hey Magi friends, come on over. You gotta see this verse. Why would they be so excited about it? Because it's a converging of all of the things that they're so excited about. There's a star, it's about a king, it's about power, it's rooted in faith, it's everything they care about. They would have had a conference to study this and discuss it and figure out what they were going to do with this new knowledge that they have. They would have been beside themselves with a prediction of a king that rises up at the sign of a star. More than they could have wished for. For a magi, the perfect storm of all things. Now, not to mention here that the expectation would have been building because generation after generation of magi had had to watch and wait for this moment. It's not like those first magi who read this verse back in the 5th, 6th century BC that it's not like they saw the realization of it because it would be another 500 plus years. That, that those magi would have lived to the end of their life and passed it on to the next magi and generation after generation after generation just waiting and waiting and waiting for something to happen. We can't wait till next Tuesday for anything to happen in our generation. And they've waited five centuries for this to come to be, the expectation building in them all of the way because it was the fulfillment of all their hopes and dreams and those of humanity as well. It was the end of their search. It was the discovery of the truth. And the questions that the Magi had at that time were the same questions that we have. That there's something else that we're hoping for, but we wonder, these are the questions, when is that gonna happen? Where will it take place? What's it going to look like when it actually happens? What's actually going to change when that hope is realized? We ought to be asking the same questions because it's the same hope that we're anticipating today. That period in history, in fact, saw widespread expectation of a coming deliverer or ruler. 
It's interesting to read in some Roman historians, not believers by any stretch of the imagination, just men who were writing about what they observed at the time. And um, Suetonius said this, a Roman historian, there had spread all over the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. That Judea is this like small, insignificant little province that had been conquered over and over again over the centuries and now was under Roman rule. And yet here's a Roman historian. He's not saying he believes this. He's just saying that in the entire Roman world, there was this idea that, that some ruler was going to come out of this little place called Judea. He wasn't the only one. Tacitus also said this. There was a firm persuasion that at this very time, the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. This word about a Messiah, about a deliverer, had spread around the entire known world. The Jewish historian Josephus also spoke of one coming from Judea who would be a ruler of the earth. None of these people were Christians. Just observing what the mood and the temperature was. Now, I, I would just say, we need more of that expectation today. That something needs to change. Because as I observe things, it's a mess out there right now. Is it not? It's a, it's a mess out there. And this world needs to know that there is a hope and that there is a savior and that God has a plan for all of this. That he's the only one who can solve this problem that we've created for ourselves in this world. Our world needs this. And so we think about the, the big three existential questions that get asked. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? And all of those questions get answered here by these magi. That knowing who I am first is essential to hope. Where do I belong? What's my identity? How do I relate to God? Now because they had studied the Hebrew Bible, these magi would have known that we were all created in the image of God. They come asking, where is he who was born king of the Jews? They were now contributing to this historian's perspective that everyone's talking about a deliverer from Judea. And they themselves were identifying with this, created in the image of God, knowing that they belonged to him. These magi had evidently captured upon the thought that everyone was talking about. And their journey indicated that they wanted in on it. They wanted to know who they were. Now, of course, we have the complete, they didn't have it, but we have the complete revelation of God. We have the complete story about Jesus Christ. We know who we are in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are sons and daughters of that king who was born in Bethlehem. We have an inheritance before us that is unimaginable. 
We have an eternity set before us that is ours if we are the followers of Jesus Christ now, if we have faith to believe him. And God pours out on us in these days an abundant life that you can only understand if you have it. All of that is ours, tied to who we are, our identity in him. And all because Jesus Christ came, took on human flesh, and gave his life on the cross for us. Sin forgiven, relationship established, eternity secured. That's who we are. Amen? That's who we are. And then this, based on that identity, knowing why I'm here, what my purpose is. And the Magi knew their purpose in life. We saw his star when it arose. 500 years of watching. That was our purpose. We're just watching for this star to come. The star itself can be explained in a couple of ways. Most likely, according to astronomers, those are the science people, according to them, it is likely the convergence of Jupiter and Saturn, the initial sighting of the star, a convergence of Jupiter and Saturn producing a super bright celestial body that occurred around 7 BC. The star that appears in verse 9 may not be the exact same star because it seems to be more of a supernatural phenomenon. We'll talk more about that when we get to it. But the Magi saw this star the fulfillment, as the fulfillment of their purpose. And why else would they still have been watching some five centuries later? They didn't miss it. They knew their purpose in life was to discover the truth about this. And our purpose is to really be in an unhindered relationship with our creator and God to do the work that he's given us to do and to do it for his glory. That's our purpose. That's why we exist. So don't wonder, don't wonder why you're here. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need not wonder about the nature of humanity and why we exist what this is all about. We don't need to be wringing our hands over philosophies and anthropologies and how does this all fit together? The alternate philosophies and the alternate anthropologies, the problem with them is this, that they put man at the center of the philosophy. They put man at the center of the anthropology and that's where it goes off track. All the philosophy that we need is contained in the Word of God. All of the anthropology that we need is right here based on this. If we have this as our starting point, then everything else locks into place in such a beautiful and fulfilling way because God designed it that way for us. Know what our purpose is. I know who I am. I know why I'm here. And finally, I know where I'm going. The end of the journey for these magi was to worship and to pay homage to a child who was to be king. Notice in verse 2 that they had come to worship him. Now, I am, I'm absolutely certain that they did not understand the full weight of what they were doing when they came. That really what they, in their mind, thought that they were doing was giving honor to a new king, that they were paying homage, as I said, to a new human king. Because we have a fuller revelation, we understand that he was not just 
a human king, but he was God made flesh. He was God himself. What they did in ignorance, we do with knowledge. You see, the end of the journey is always the same. The end of the journey is always the same. It is the adoration of the only one who is worthy to be worshipped. I know where I'm going. I'm going to see that king face to face. I'm going to be in his presence for all eternity. I am going to worship him forever and ever. That's where I'm going. And as many times as I can do that on this side of eternity, before I get there, I'm going to get that done. As many times as I can worship and adore him on my own in the quietness of my time with him, I'm going to do it. As many times as I can get together with you and other believers to lift high the name of Jesus Christ and worship, I'm going to do it. Until that day that I see him face to face and I do it for all eternity. We've come to adore him, to worship him. The end of the journey is always the same. The excitement and the expectation builds to this very moment. Because we too have seen his star. We too have made the journey. And we too have come to worship him. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.